listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. It is in your son's name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. This morning, if I was to say the words, growing communities, building leaders, and living generously, would you know what I was talking about? Now, if you have been around here long enough and you heard that and you said Bethel Bible Church, you would be absolutely correct in that. That is... That is why Bethel Bible Church is here. That, that is, in a nutshell, it is our mission. It, it's much longer than that, but we've condensed it to be a, a portable thing that we could remember. Growing communities, building leaders, and living generously for God's glory. And that is why we are here. Now, we do this in a lot of different ways. We might grow communities. That's that discipleship and that can be that model of outreach where we want to build communities. We want to plant other campuses in other communities where people come together for uh, encouragement and for reading and the teaching of God's Word and using their gifts. And it's also things like we want to connect with our neighbors and we want to provide places for people to find encouragement and discipleship, such as life groups and men's and women's Bible studies, even serving on a team together, you build community. This team, every week, they have a unique relationship because they are growing together. We also want to build leaders. We look at this as evangelism and discipleship. We want to raise up men that will serve as deacons and elders. And next week, we will be instilling three new deacons um, on this campus. We also look at opportunities of equipping people to share the gospel. and People using their spiritual gifts to serve and to build up the body. We want to partner with the home as parents and grandparents disciple their children and grandchildren. I'm so excited to kind of feel like finally have some, some time that this next, beginning this next fall, we're going to be doing some intentional things with our families. But the last one of... Living generously. It's one that we often, it, it kind of feels like the, the Holy Spirit in a lot of ways. It's kind of the one that often gets neglected. And, and we're going to kind of now bring this one to the forefront for the next four weeks. But the beauty of our vision statement is you really just can't take one of the statements and leave it out on its own. They're all connected. We can't build communities without growing leaders. And I get that by growing communities and without building leaders. And we can't build leaders without being generous. And they're all connected. But for the next few weeks, we are going to focus on the idea of living generously. Now, before you sigh and you think, oh, no, the preacher's just going to preach for money over the next four weeks, I promise you 
that that's not what I'm going to do. Now, are we going to talk about money? We have to. We should. But money is not all we're going to talk about. In fact, uh, I'm going to make you two promises. One, money will not be all that we talk about. I promise you that. In fact, I like the idea of thinking about this as whole life generosity. We need to be people that are generous with our money, with our time, with our talents, with our words, with our homes. But we will need to talk about money as we will this week. And here's the second promise. I promise I will not ask you for one nickel. Okay, I promise you, this is not an opportunity. Uh, We've been praying all week there would be no guilt in this. This is not an opportunity to ask for money. So I want us to begin this journey for four weeks on whole life generosity of what does it look like biblically to live generous lives. And we're going to do it from two chapters in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we'll start this morning. So you can go ahead and make your way to 2 Corinthians 8. And then we will begin building into chapter 9. But I want to break the ice this way. We cannot escape the issues of money. Money is such a part of our lives. We we have to earn it. We, God has created us to work, and we're in this system that we need money to provide so many things. And you know, there's really only three options you have with it. You can either spend it, you can save it or invest it, or you can give it away. And next week, we're going to talk about that, and we're even going to talk about the dangers that are hidden in all three of those. But money, it is such a powerful force in your life. I don't know if you've ever worried about money. I don't know if you've ever gotten upset about money. But it is something that is such a part of who we are. And the reason is, is that we use money to evaluate almost every area of our lives. We evaluate our worth by the amount of money we have. We evaluate our security By the money we have. We evaluate our success. We even evaluate our power by the money we have. We even evaluate our status by what's in our bank accounts. And we can even evaluate the worth of others by the money they have or they don't have. But today we're going to see something that I'm so thankful is far more powerful than money. When this force breaks into your life, everything changes. It changes how you view yourself, how you view others, and it even changes the things you think about, the things you do, and even changes how you view and even how you use money. And it's a word that we often throw around called grace. So when grace, when when it breaks into your life, everything changes. Now, you might be thinking, what, what do you then mean by grace? Well, if you've been in and around church for any number of time, you've probably heard the word grace. And you might even be thinking of the very, com- uh, the very common definition that grace is an undeserved gift or unmerited favor. An undeserved gift or unmerited favor. And you would be absolutely correct. That is a true definition, but it doesn't go far enough. Grace, grace is not just a thing. And I believe we can often think about grace as the stuff that that God gives us. 
Now, there are many, many things that God gives us that we do not deserve. God gives us air to breathe, and people to love, and food to eat, as you can smell today. Jobs to earn money, cars to get us from one place or another. And we would say, we do not deserve any of this. So they are all forms of grace, but grace is not just stuff that God gives us apart from himself. In fact, I want us to think about that at the core, at the very center of grace, is actually God giving us himself that we don't deserve. And that's, that's really, that, that's ultimately grace. And when the things that we have, yes, that is an outpouring of that, but grace is God giving himself to us. And when that breaks into your life, it is God giving himself to you that you could never earn, you could never deserve, and you could never pay back. And that grace, it changes everything about you. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about what it means to be generous with our money, our time, our talents, our words, our homes. But we're going to do it from the writings of Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And we're going to talk about generosity from a very interesting perspective. Paul talks about this idea of whole life generosity, about living generously from the perspective and the posture of grace. In fact, in these two chapters, it's used eight times. In fact, today we'll see five times in the first nine verses he uses grace. So I want it to be grace-filled. There there needs to be no guilt involved in this. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at whole life generosity. How do we fulfill our mission of living generously, of grace-giving, or giving according to grace. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Took a little time to build that porch this morning. But hopefully you've found your place there. So here's the stage. Here is what is happening. If you were to flip through this letter. It would be just like you corresponding with someone. You're sending these letters back and forth. There's kind of a history that built up into this. And it doesn't make any sense when you really don't know what has happened. Well this letter. It happened about 20 years after Jesus' resurrection, early 51, 52 A.D. And Paul had set out to take this beautiful gospel to the Gentiles. And he's establishing churches wherever he goes and establishing leadership and watching people come to know Christ and then following him and then taking the gospel to other people. Well, he lands in the beautiful city of Corinth. It's a growing, it's a thriving city. And he, he establishes this church there that is very dear to his heart. And on his third missionary journey, Paul stops in Ephesus. He's there for three years, he's a tent maker, and he kind of plants his feet there. And during this time, he writes a letter to the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians. He sends this letter to them and they receive it. And they've got some questions. There's some things going on. So they sent some men. They said, go find Paul. He's in Ephesus. And find out what we should do. Paul sits down with these men. And he hears about the difficulty this church is having. And so he travels all the way back to Corinth. When he gets there. And this, this visit doesn't go away. He's not received with open arms. And, oh, Paul, we're so glad you're here. He founds hostility. In fact, he even calls it, he says that it was a, a time of remorse, a sorrowful visit 
he says. So Paul leaves and he's discouraged. And he goes back and he writes a very severe letter. The problem is we don't have that letter today. It was not preserved. We don't have that second letter where he sends to them. And, and if you've ever done that, if you've ever kind of sent that email and you're kind of wondering, ooh, I don't, I don't know how that's going to be received. I mean, I, I tried to do it in the right spirit. I hope they receive it well. And I believe that's kind of what's going on with Paul. So he's troubled by this. And he doesn't know if it's going to be received well. Is it going to just drive a greater wedge between him and this church he loves? So Paul says, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to the people that I love there. So he sends Titus. And Titus, he goes by boat and he gets there a little quicker. And Paul is going to make his way around Asia Minor on the land route. And when he lands in Troas, Titus shows up. Man, I can imagine Paul seeing him thinking, oh man, what's going to happen here? How did they receive this letter? Holding his breath and anxiously waiting for the news he's about to hear when they receive this harsh letter. I believe Titus, I don't know, I kind of tend to think, I hope Titus kind of played this up and kind of hung his head and said, Paul, you know, he needs to worry a little bit more. But it says that Titus brings a report that they received his letter and they repented of their actions and their belief. And Paul is overjoyed and he sits down and he writes 2 Corinthians. And so that's the backstory. That's what's happening when he receives and he writes this letter. So I want to encourage us to go back and to read those first seven chapters. But here we are in chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. He says, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in the wealth of generosity on their part. So before all the trouble in Corinth, Paul was traveling from church to church, and he's gathering a collection. He's taking up an offering to send back to the, the Christians that are living in Judea. During this time, famine has swept through that land under Emperor Claudius. And a severe famine is taking over. And so he's trying to collect from Asia Minor and all these other churches to send back an offering to help buy, buy food to keep these people alive. And the Corinth church had begun giving to this. But when they bought into these false beliefs and this false teaching, they lost their zeal for being generous and helping others. And it's like they made a pledge and they started giving and then they just stopped. So Paul, he's so excited here that they've come back and they've repented. And so he wants to call them back to a generous life once again. Because look at what it says. He says there, and this is what blows my mind. When he's talking about them being generous, he says, The grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So before Paul even uses the word generosity, He uses the word grace. And what he's doing, he wants to call the church of Corinth back to that generous giving, that grace giving. And he uses the example of the Macedonian churches. And this Macedonian giving is really, if you see there, it's really, he uses some interesting words. He says it's really God's grace is being shown to them. Isn't that an interesting thought? Notice that it is not the church with a large budget or with a large surplus of money. It's a church that we're about to see is fighting for their lives 
And he says, it's God's grace that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So Paul sees giving and generous living as grace. But notice this church. Here's their two problems they're facing. First, it says that there is a severe test of affliction. You see it there in verse 2? Now, it doesn't tell us what it is. We're not told any specifics. But they are being crushed by life, it says. And they could be pressures from the Roman Empire, maybe their neighbors, or just the day-to-day battles that people face. In fact, I think he draws back on 2 Corinthians 4, 8, where it says they're being pressed on every side. And then, extreme poverty. They're suffering from this poverty that's extreme. In fact, the word means both spear. And it's a strange word that is used today. It's, it's a word that means kind of deep water exploration. I think what Paul is saying is that these people, their poverty, it runs deep. Alfred Palmer translates, he says, they are down to the depths poor. Now, I know for us, that, that's, that's hard to imagine. Because I know for me, man, I think of poor when I want certain things that I just maybe can't afford. I want to go eat at a certain place that maybe I just don't have the money at the time. But these people, these churches in Macedonia, they were suffering from extreme poverty and affliction. I mean, think about running into a person. Have you ever sat down with someone, ever run across someone that was really being afflicted on all sides of life? It's like everywhere they're turned, there's more bad news and something else happens to them. Or maybe they are sitting in extreme poverty where they don't even know where the next meal is going to come, where they don't even sure where they're going to be able to get a drink of water soon. Have you ever known anyone in that extreme poverty, watching their children waste away? Now, do you have that picture of that person in your mind? Well, look at this group of people. Paul finds them, and he uses the words, he says, their abundance of joy. They are being afflicted on every side, pressed in from every side, and they are down to the depths poor. But in their affliction, Paul says he looked at them, and they had an abundance of joy, and that should shock us. I mean, it doesn't take much for me to lose my joy. I mean, my kids can just say the wrong thing, or I can have one small unmet expectation, I can forget to, I don't know, send in one bill and I get that notice, or I even have to just stop and get gas because I'm late, and all of a sudden, all my joy gets tossed out the window. But these churches, they are being afflicted on all sides. There is no relief, and he finds them having an abundance of joy. And not only that, Paul says at the end of verse 2, They have overflowed in the wealth of generosity on their part. I don't know about you, but man, when I'm struggling physically or emotionally or even financially, man, I tend to get so self-centered. And the more pain, it's like the more the focus is set on me. But these people in Macedonia, they are to the depths poor. They're being afflicted on every side, but they're full of joy. And it says they're overwhelming, they're overflowing with generosity with their wealth. But Paul, didn't you just say they 
were extremely poor, like down to the depths poor. And now he says in their wealth. You see, we, we have a distorted view of wealth. When we think of wealth, we think of someone that has more money than we do. But Paul's not talking about an amount. He's talking about everything that we have, as small or as much as it may be, it is a gift and it's all wealth. And these people in Macedonia, they're extremely poor, but they're being generous with all the wealth that they have. Now this church, these churches, they had plenty to be frustrated about and to be discouraged and sorrowful. But instead it says they're rejoicing and they're giving. And that should, that should amaze us, that should inspire us, and that should even convict us. Now, it's even shocking. Look at verse 3 and 4. And they gave according to their means. With what they had, they were giving. And as I testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now notice the emphasis is not on the amount. The emphasis is that they gave according to their means, and they even gave beyond it, meaning they gave contrary to their ability. They gave, and guess what? They even gave then to the point that they had to rely on God to provide. I don't know if you've ever given in that way. Have you ever given to the point that you were going to have to step out on faith and to a, a trust God to provide? Well, that's what the Macedonian churches were doing. They were giving, and then they were giving to the point that they then had to rely on God. And this part is so interesting to me. Because here you have Paul that followed Christ, it seems like no other, and they had to beg Paul to take their gift. Why would they have to do that? I believe Paul looked at their situation. And he saw how deep their needs were. And I think Paul looked at them and said, no, no, no. You need this. But they begged earnestly that Paul would take their gift. Man, have you ever known anybody like that that said... Man, they're just so generous that they were begging people to let them give instead of people having to beg them to give. And it says that they, this is why they did. They, he says, this is what they're saying. They begged them. And they're saying, Paul, do not rob us of the honor and the privilege of giving and taking part in the relief of our Jewish brothers in Judea. I mean, they were looking at this and saying, don't rob us of this. These small, these parts, these insignificant churches were gushing with joy of giving. And they were excited to give even though they had very little. But what is it? What is it that would cause this group of people that were in such severe affliction on every side and such deep poverty... What would cause them to want to give and even give more than they were being asked of? Well, Paul gives it right here in verse 5. And this, Paul says, this is not at all what I expected. But they, they gave themselves first to the Lord 
and then by the will of God to us. So Paul doesn't expect to find their overflowing joy in their such generous in their giving. But it says the, the way, the ability to do that is that they gave themselves first to the Lord. Now to give oneself, it means to place yourself on the altar. It means to give up or to give to something. One of the scariest and one of the most beautiful prayers you could ever pray is, Lord, take my life, it's yours. Now, God doesn't need you to turn over your life to him. Just ask Paul and just ask Jonah. But there is nothing more terrifying and there is nothing more exciting than to fully and completely turn your life over to God. Nothing will be more scary and nothing will be more exciting than for you to give your life to Him fully, without reservation. We said, whatever it is, Lord, I'm going to trust you to provide what I need, the courage, the means, but whatever you have, I will follow. And that's what the churches in Macedonia had done. And this is what they learned. When we know that our lives are not our own, then we will not think of our possessions as our own. The Macedonian churches, they experienced this. They found out it's a lot easier to surrender part when you had already given the whole. And that's what they realized. That's what they had found. They found the freedom that comes when they had fully surrendered their life and they experienced grace. But Paul now makes a transition. He makes a transition to now asking the Corinthians to now continue to live generously. Look at verse 6 and 7. Accordingly, we urge Titus, as he had started, that he should complete among you this act of grace, this generous giving. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness or eagerness, and in all love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. So Paul acknowledges that this church of Corinth has some, is excelling at some things. They have many things to be excited about. They're really doing great in the way they, they have faith, the way they talk, and what they know, even how they love. Paul says, you are excelling at that. But he's saying that there's one thing that you're neglecting. Paul urges them to pick back up where they had left off and to continue the race. Paul says, continue to focus and to strive in your faith, in your speech, in your knowledge, and in your love, but also strive just as hard in this act of grace. So what is this act of grace? Paul says it's giving and living a generous life with your wealth. That is an act of grace. But it's not you, and it's not even me. It's actually allowing God's grace that flows to you to then go to others. And I think so many times, and I am just as guilty, is that what we're really doing with God's grace is we're kind of acting like one of those Corps of Engineer dams where God is giving and He's giving and He's giving. 
And man, we just keep building that dam bigger and bigger and taller and taller because we need it. We feel like that we cannot give anything away. But instead, Paul says, open up those floodgates and allow the grace of God to flow from you to other people. And one way that happens is with our wealth. But I began by talking about that money is such a powerful thing in our lives because we evaluate so much of our lives. We evaluate our worth, our security, our success, our power, our status, even the worth of others by this money. We live with such a pressure of it. But the real and more important question is to ask, does God have all of you? Because listen, it will not, it will not do you any good to give God your possessions unless you have given Him yourself. If you do not give yourself first to God, like we see in these these Christians in Macedonia, that is how they had this overflowing joy and generosity. Meaning, if you don't give yourself first to God, your giving, it will only harm you. Listen to that again. If you don't first give yourself to God, your giving is going to harm you. Because here's why. If your giving doesn't come from what is within you, meaning God working in you, then it's only external giving. And external giving is dangerous. Because before you could give your things, you have to give God yourself because this is what it looks like. When he doesn't have all of you. If you give your possessions without giving yourself, you'll give. And without even saying it, and even without even realizing, you're trying to pay God back. You're trying to uh, pay Christ back for what he had done. And you know what you're doing? And I find myself doing this at times to time. You're only giving out of guilt. You say, well, man, look at what he's done for me. I guess the least I can do is do this. No. He says, don't give in that way. That's only external giving, and that is giving out of guilt. And you'll never be able to pay Christ back. But if you're giving your possessions without giving you yourself, you can give because it makes you feel better about yourself. And there is nothing that you will find there's nothing satisfying that you could ever find in giving because you're giving and you're trying to find your identity and your worth in that because it makes you feel better. It'll never work. If you give your possessions without giving of yourself, you will give thinking that it earns you something and it makes you better than someone else and that is nothing but giving out of pride. If we give our possessions without giving Him ourselves, And there is a danger that we can give trusting in our giving that will somehow make us right before God. And that is a dangerous sense of salvation. So giving things and money and possessions, instead of giving Him ourselves, that's easy to make that a religion. And you can never turn to Christ for salvation in So the question this morning, if you have never given your life to Christ, don't give your money. If you have never given your life to Christ, don't give your money. God does not need your money. In fact, 
He doesn't want you to mislead yourself. So don't give before he has you. You know, these Corinthian believers, they were blessed with many graces, faith and speech and knowledge. And I hope people can say that about Bethel. But they did not excel in the act of grace giving. Despite all their great qualities, they were incomplete. And Paul wanted them to grow to spiritual maturity. Meaning there is no way to grow in spiritual maturity without first committing yourself to Him and your finances. Because Jesus, Jesus can have your money and He not have your heart. But He cannot have your heart without also having your money. And so this morning, I want us to think about and I want us to reflect on the most generous, most giving person that has ever walked the face of the earth. And to think about the most generous act the world has ever seen. Jesus is the one, it says, that we'll see next week, that he gave up everything. He became poor so you could become rich. And so this time this morning, we will close with a time of remembering, a time of reflection with the Lord's Supper. It's a time to remember the most generous person and the most generous act the world has ever seen. And so this morning, I'm going to ask the men that are going to pass out the elements. And this morning, we have a great opportunity. We are going to break bread together, and then we will have lunch another time of breaking bread. So this morning, as we think about this, the most generous person that has ever walked the face of the earth. He gave everything up so that we could have everything. We could never pay him back and we could never earn it. But we're dangerous people. We're people that can take anything. We can take something good and we can easily turn it to something bad. In fact, this morning and Last week I was reading and thinking about the Lord's Supper and we often read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 beginning in verse 23 and we will do that again. But before that, there's a problem that says this. Paul's talking to the people that he loves and he says, but in following these instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I'm hearing nothing but divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be fractions among you in order that those who are genuine among you, you may be recognized. So when you come together, he says, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What do you want that you have these houses that you can go and you can eat and you can drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. But I'm not for sure where your truth lands with us this morning. And maybe it hits us really hard and we are people that have recognized how selfish that we have been. And Father, 
I find myself doing that, whether it's with my time, withholding my words, refusing to open myself up to what you have. So, Father, forgive us of that. Father, maybe we kind of feel like we are. We are generous people. And, Father, help us to live above and beyond that people would look at your church and say we are abounding in joy and overflowing with generosity. But, Father, we could never, ever do that on our own. It is only because of your Son, the most generous one that has ever walked this earth. It is because of Him, because He gave up everything. He became poor so that we could become rich. And so, Father, may we remember Him this morning. May we reflect on Him. So it was in your Son's name and by the power of your Spirit we say, Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.